0: Thank
1: everyone, dear members of the Bunga cast Reading Club, this is the final reading club of 2022. Um, as you'll notice a little bit late, um, we're in early January. Um, but uh, we're going to proceed and try to kind of wrap up this 2022 reading club um, on the last theme on neo-feudalism by talking specifically about class. Anyway, I'll hand over to George uh, in just a second to talk about that. But before we do that, we have to just address a couple of comments that we received on the last one, which was on uh, artificial intelligence. So let me just go through a couple of these. JPAF comments on a Something a little bit more specific, which was the police robots in San Francisco, um, usefully points out that these aren't robots, um, that they have, no, or rather that they're robots, but they have nothing to do with uh, AI because they're remote controlled. These robots are typically used to defuse bombs or survey an area that officers are otherwise unwilling or unable to reach, basically on the ground drones. They're not sentient androids endowed with decision-making powers over life and limb. Nevertheless, should San Francisco allow such remote-controlled robots to employ deadly force, this would obviously allow the police even greater scope to kill potentially innocent and certainly untried individuals, not to mention collateral damage to the lives and property of others. Yeah, scary enough um, without them necessarily being AI um, killer bots. Um two uh quick questions um and a, a couple of other ones which uh seem pretty um, happy with the episode and, and found it interesting Blake says that he did an AI related Master's program a few years back and the technical discussions here seems to be pretty much on the mark very glad you, you guys didn't fall for any of the obvious Grifts within the field like superintelligence. autonomous vehicles are basically still a pipe dream as well in general AI is very good at problems where the solution space is narrowly defined like optimization problems in engineering or image classification. Recently, some huge steps have been made in natural language generation and AI art. Yeah, that's something which I think everybody has um, witnessed and and probably why people get quite excited about AI because you see all this kind of image generation and AI art and think, well, that must mean that the field is progressing rapidly and that AI will do all this sorts of stuff Um, but it seems that at least you guys who, um, work in the area or have studied a little bit in the area say that, you know, that isn't necessarily, um, that doesn't really say that much about the field as a whole, that these are just kind of the most advanced bits. Phil.
0: Yeah. I think the, um, it's also, I mean, it always feeds into questions of how you understand human capacity, I guess. Right. So, you know, the kind of the ability of AI to generate like a Vermeer or a Rembrandt is, you know, uncanny. But it's not it's not genuine creativity. Um, You know, it's not genuine human creativity or, you know, non-human creativity, because there's no conscious kind of, you know, there's no actual conscious apprehension. Um, It is just a a very um, clever copy. Anyway, but what I'm I suppose what I'm getting at is. That it looks very impressive when you see something like the, um, you know, the kind of the AI generated art or the chat GPT kind of ability to splurge out a mediocre, you know, some kind of mediocre statement of banal, you know, viewpoints and homilies. So I think that constantly leads people to overestimate what it's capable of, um, but also reflects on how limited our expectations are generally. Um, both in terms of individual creativity and also in terms of you know um, general human capacity.
1: Yeah, no, that's a that's a that's a fair point. Um, you know, certainly as regards art. Um, one last question: Eli says that uh, Aaron Bastani was deeply worryingly wrong. Now he wasn't in the reading, but this is just a reference to his um, enthusiasm for AI and automation, or at least. Um, what used to be his enthusiasm for it. You can't just add computers to Gauss Plan and get a workable system. You could add better computers and more political time to Allende's Cybersyn and get a better Cybersyn, but that's thanks to the difference between Cybersyn and Gauss Plan. Um, so I mean, get what Eli is getting at here is that simply adding better computers um, to um, a planned economy doesn't necessarily um, resolve the problems that planned economies have had. So there's still a radical gap between what a controls engineer would recognize as a viable way to steer a system towards fulfilling a plan, taking into account the trade-offs that arise in the course of things, and a 20th century vertically integrated firm with command economies being the extreme case of, quote unquote, one big firm. So basically, computers remain failures at providing just at water solutions to questions of political economy, both from the political angle and the strictly economic angle. Um, and I think that I think that's probably right, because this gets to the, the nub of something that we've discussed possibly in that episode and have discussed in the past with regard to planning, indeed in in previous reading clubs in the past years, that. Um, the questions and difficulties of planning and trying to find a, you know, trying to navigate towards some model of planning that would work. It's not just a matter of saying, hey, um, now we've got these really powerful computers that they didn't have in the 1920s and 30s, and that will resolve uh, the problems that they are political and that they're economic ones, not just ones of uh, limited compute, computational power that there was in the past. <music> All right. uh, On to uh, today's episode about uh, the precariat, George.
2: Yeah. So today, the fourth um, episode on techno feudalism. So we had three, uh, well, this is the third within the Reading Club. And we also had the three uh, episode discussing Evgeny Morozov's um, take on all this. So, yeah, I guess the, you know, just for listeners who might not have heard the previous two, we won't go into detail of all of them, but... The first was in October. So this is where we discussed Joel Copkins' The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, A Warning to the Global Middle Class. And this was, I think, a, a good way into some of the sorts of claims that techno-feudalists might make. Then in November, we talked about some of the technological aspects of this. So this was this, obviously, at the start of the episode, some questions on that, but this book, in human Power, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Capitalism. And so what are we doing today? So after... um the, the free-to-all episode of Evgeny Morozov's critique of techno-feudal reason. Today, it's a question of new classes. So we have two readings, the first by, uh, I'm going to mispronounce his name, or I will be corrected on the pronunciation by Alex, but Rui Braga, is that close enough?
1: No, Bra- Bra- Braga, Rui yeah, Braga.
2: Rui Braga. Braga. Okay, Braga, close enough. Um, a return of class struggle without class, moral economy and popular resistance in Brazil, South Africa, and Portugal, and Guy Standing, the Precariat, today's transformative class. There's a question mark at the end of that. Um, and yeah, so I guess to just to kick things off, one of the questions which we've been discussing across this um this part of the reading club and also in that that Morozov episode is I guess how to situate some of the the trends that neo-feudal the neo feudal thesis tends to capture. Um are they real? So they, you know, things about how technology is changing class structure, how the sorts of bases of, of um, so for social actors are changing as well, um, and this may or may not amount to a new uh, new form of society, and if so, one that has some retrogressive elements um, compared with kind of this idealized vision of capitalism, maybe. But yeah, this, I guess, is the the if we have class deformation, if we have the end of wage citizenship, um, if we have the end of integration through work as a key engine of modernization, what does all this add up to? You know, how do we um, how do we approach this this question of like the, what these new classes might might look like and, and how they relate to um, to questions of techno feudalism?
1: Yeah, and I mean, I it's not even I guess techno feudalism because I might presume a bit too much. I think it's as you know, as you said. I think a lot of the um phenomena, social phenomena that have been discussed under the title of neo feudalism, are probably things that we all agree are happening, and that they're all happening together, and that they're probably connected to one another, right? Um, and this is something that we discussed with Kotkin um at the beginning of this, where it's like, yeah, we we all. You know, we can agree that there's, you know, um, inequality, that the kind of classes are being reformed and deformed and um, perhaps recombined in different ways. Uh, that there's perhaps diminished sovereignty, but maybe not diminished sovereignty because you know Morozov's critique is that <laughs> that you know the rise of the tech barons is deeply implicated with um, a very strong U.S. security state. Anyway, all these different things. Um, but I I guess what's interesting about what we're going to discuss today is that it gets to the root of um, probably the core or one of the core elements of um, of these transformations of this package of transformations that are going on, which is to do with with class right and that the old um, working class as it used to exist uh perhaps doesn't any longer and so asking what what shape does that take that you know what shape does does labor take because um whether you agree with the neo feudal thesis or not um i think kind of both sides pro and anti would would um agree that one of the central things that is going on is the fact that um, we all look like serfs or you know where that that labor is a lot less um organized coherent and powerful than it used to be. And so trying to understand what is happening there is, I guess, what we're, what these readings do and what we're going to discuss now.
0: I was just about to say, I agree with Alex. And then I heard him say, we all look like serfs and this idea that podcasters, you know, are the kind of the new, um, oppressed kind of you know class i just can't
1: I, I, buy it I, did i say that did i i'm not in this we this is a we for other people this is another one
0: <laughs> uh, one of the one of those kind of we's yeah i mean i um i'm not be i mean i'm not being entirely facetious about podcasting and um because this i think it kind of connects to one of the strands in the um, standing piece um, for the reading, but we'll come to that momentarily. Um, I mean, I agree with, uh, you know, what Alex said. I think it is, um, it's useful. I mean, timely for obvious reasons in that so much of everyone is trying to get a handle, uh, particularly in the wake of the last few years um, with, you know, kind of uh, more labor markets getting tighter um, the changing kind of status of manual labor or menial kind of jobs as a result of the pandemic, as well as the general kind of, um, uh, you know, sense of decay of public and social decay resulting from the last two years. And then, of course, the squeeze on living standards, all of this makes it, I think, timely and urgent to think about, you know, how questions of work, um, labor, organized labor or unorganized labor and um, labor, power by which i mean um how far um labor has the potential for control or agency all of those are you know more i mean they're kind of perennial questions but um Hmm. all the more important in in the contemporary context
1: i mean i would just add actually i mean because in some ways this is an old discussion old in the sense of it being you know like 40 years over 40 years old i mean andre Gors, who's one of the main thinkers of a kind of um uh, you know, of post-industrial society, of a of a new form of socialism, which wouldn't involve the old industrial proletariat. Um, I'm not a particularly fan of his, but uh, it's notable that his book, Farewell to the Working Class, you know, Farewell to the Working Class, it's pretty explicit, um, came out in 1980. Right. So that's this is like a, a very long discussion. Um, but as Phil says, there's some very, re- very recent things which have um, added a new um, kind of immediacy to this discussion. And, and to a certain extent, you know, kind of like tightening labor markets seem to be pushing in the opposite direction to a lot of what happened, well, of what was happening in 1980. Right. So like, you know, uh, a kind of stalling, if not entirely reversal of globalization um, sets things up in a very different way to to the direction that things were pointing in 1980.
0: Yeah, it's a different inflection point. I mean, the other kind of famous, you know, the other famous statement um, belonging to that time that was um, contemporaneous with Gortz was um, Eric Hobsbawm's, I think it was a bit earlier, actually, the late 70s, Eric Hobsbawm's Mm. essay, The Forward March of Labour Halted. And you know, and that was part of the um the push by, um the British left and particularly a Stalinist kind of um core, to um embrace the new social movements, um as, as opposed to the working class, right, as the agent of change, and that in turn laid the ground for new labour. Anyway, it's not to get into a history lesson. It's only to say that, um, it is a different moment, right? So I mean, I think like you said, suggest, Alex, that kind of earlier attempt to abandon the working class. Um, was at the beginning of globalization whereas this kind of new orientation I think it's an, it's different in as much as um, it still kind of has that um, I suppose ambivalent if not hostile kind of um, disposition towards the questions of social and political change to the workplace and labor rather than avoiding those questions in favor of Social movements that are separate from, from the question of uh, production.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's a good a good way to frame it, and it's worth just clarifying. Both these pieces were are from pre-pandemic times, so twenty eighteen and twenty nineteen. So, I guess some of these questions of vulnerability, of precarity, and and all these sorts of things are, you know, even even clearer now than they were in a few a few years ago. Um, yeah, so I think just, you know, just to kind of summarise what I think some of the key questions that the both these readings tackle uh, are in the context of the techno-feudal section of the Reading Club. The first is, do we have a new historical agent? You know, you both alluded to these the forward march of uh, Labour halted, you know, the working class um, being <laughs> bid farewell. You know, that, that was 80s or late 70s, quite a while ago um new social movements maybe have been assessed and discarded do we have a new historical agent and is this caused by a fundamental change in in the class structure um and of course the potential candidate for that we're interviewing that we're reviewing today is the precariat so is this the new historical agent has this um group been been thrown up by fundamental changes in in class structure um and so i think it's um worth giving some some definitions that I won't go into too much uh detail but guys we can do the standing piece um first because it's a bit more i guess um systematic and even at points maybe arguably uh, quite manifesto y um but his definition is that the precariat is a mass class defined by unstable labor arrangements lack of identity and erosion to, erosion of rights and that's from the front page um and basically unpacks it a bit more, they have low and unstable incomes, a loss of citizenship. And there are three um, key dimensions of that, that go to, towards defining who the precariat are. The first is that they have distinctive relations of production, um, these patterns of labor and work. The second is that they have distinctive relations of distribution, so sources of social income. They rely on money wages, which have been stagnant or falling in real terms for three dec- decades and are volatile and um have lost a lot of non-wage remuneration um and various sorts of uncertainty contingency risk on on this on these sources of social income and they have distinctive relations to the state so they've lost citizenship rights and this as guys standing puts it is the most defining feature of the class the precariat consists of supplicants so a kind of um a a relationship of being lower than um the state so that's the sort of the definition um that standing gives for the precariat anything that i missed or um what did you guys make of the he says that it's an internally very divided class what did you make of the this division that he he makes um into three factions of the precariat
1: i I, you know i I guess in general terms it's sort of fine and i think the kind of looseness of it is fitting to its subject matter you know as we'll come to see with uh, the uh, when we come to discuss the Braga uh, reading just a bit, um, it is not a class which has fully formed. It's maybe not even a class in in the in the traditional or the modern understanding of it. Um, and therefore i'm I'm kind of okay with a, a fairly kind of loose definition of it because we don't exactly know, um, you know, it's it's its boundaries. Um when it comes to the specific kind of breakdown, I mean, I guess are you're referring here to the way that he breaks. Um, the precariat down into atavists, nostalgics, and progressives. Is that the yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, that is a um he combines social and political um kind of um criteria in a pretty loose fashion, which kind of irked me because he's basically saying these are the good precariat that we like, the progressives, and these are the bad uh, precariat that we dislike, which are the atavists, which are like the old working class, which have been. Uh, you know, kind of further precaritized, I suppose, relative I think to the Fordist working life. Act-
0: actually, actually, what did actually I, say? I think it's atavists, not atavists.
2: Okay. Thank you for There's that. There's nothing more ghost than, than correcting how people say things. Yeah. In I my know, opinion.
0: but that's what podcasters do. That's what we're here for.
1: Anyway, so, you know, you've got the atavists who are older. And so, again, it's like a generational category, it's a uh, social category because they used to be um, the you know, industrial proletariat who are now for the precaritized. Um, And it's a political category because they tend to support right wing populists. And then you have the progressives who are probably the children of professionals, but who have been frustrated in not being able to reproduce themselves as a class and um, are downwardly mobile. Um, But they have good, like nice progressive politics, so they're good. And then you have the nostalgics who are mainly minorities and immigrants, I don't know why, um, but who are and who are kind of like to keep their heads down. So I mean, there's a whole range of kind of bundling together um, cultural, social, political and economic criteria according to the whims and preferences of the author, which to me doesn't seem very scientific.
0: Yeah, I agree with Alex. I think um, it's kind of uh, it's not that I I mean, you know, the uh, the framing of I mean, some of the choices are a bit obscure you know, nostalgics, why are they nostalgic? Why are minorities nostalgic? What are they nostalgic for? um uh the but yeah i mean the the kind of the thing about the atavists is just so kind of remark i mean astonishingly kind of contemptuous and patronizing um but beyond that right um it's also just doesn't seem to me you know he he wants to say that there is this commonality um which runs deeper than simply the kinds of jobs that um the precariat does um, but then at on the one hand, you know, what he gives with one and he kind of takes away with another by splicing up the um, precariat into these three different factions, only one of which he's willing to kind of politically endorse or bless as actually having sufficient, um, you know, the right kind of outlook in order to motivate the kind of politics that he wants. So it just seems to me it's you know kind of incoherent um, hmm. in terms of how he tries to carve it up.
2: Yeah, I think there is something about the the atavists or the atavists, um, which it sort of is one of these, maybe these kind of political tells. Whenever somebody's doing class analysis, there's always some bad remainder. You need to be um, excluded or, or or delegitimized somewhere. And he yeah, he does characterize them as having fallen out of the proletariat and says, uh, quote, having relatively little schooling or education in civics, history or culture, they tend to listen to the sirens of neo-fascist populism. Um, and that's a quote. I mean, and he also it's said,
0: just... I thought that was breathtaking.
2: Little yeah. schooling in a, or
0: education in, a, in, a, good, in a good way. Uh no, breathtaking usually is bad way. Uh little schooling or education in civics history or culture. I mean, uh Jesus Christ. You know like you what, to edu- and, what yeah. education in civics history or culture would they benefit from, you know, like at the moment that uh, you know they need the blessings of like what a university education you know give me a break.
2: I actually know this isn't the main point of what you were saying, but breathtaking is generally a good thing. I thought, but yeah, he he also said that they're bitter, eager to blame others for their for their plight, um, and that's not you know it's it's all sort of some of these tropes that we heard in the we've heard in the past sort of five years just being repeated and given sort of some kind of veneer of um, social scientific validity
1: as of uh, one yeah, of and and even, and even if you think that's a fair description. Which I don't. But even if you did, it's so politically defeatist. Because why are why is that group which is uh, categorized only by its political inclination? And political inclinations are something that, in theory, are are susceptible to change. You know, by persuasion, by organization, etc. Why would you just say, "Well, these guys are yeah. the kind of the bad ones"? Why wouldn't you try to win them over if they exactly. share the same class basis as the progressive ones? Right? If that's what the if they're all part of the proletariat, why is this one group lost? to um you know radical politics uh that's beyond me you know it's, it's just defeatist
2: yeah i'm not sure I but, but to, to defend standing a little bit he does say it's a class in the making and internally divided by different senses of relative deprivation and consciousness so there's i guess there you could say there's no reason why this sense of relative deprivation and consciousness has to be experienced in these three ways they all like all three of the factions share the central problem of the class which is um as he puts it chronic insecurity and an associated inability to develop meaningful and ecologically sustainable lives um might kind of quibble with some of that phrasing perhaps um but yeah i think it's i mean is that a bit of a cop-out to say it's still a class in
1: the making so
2: it could be made in different ways than these three factions
1: oh, I, mean, I guess it's, i mean that's fair enough i suppose Okay. Well, I'm not. I'm not going to. I mean, I'm not. I, I don't think those factions. Yeah, the factions themselves. Well, we've we've already, you know, slated that element enough.
2: Okay. Cool. So I guess if we're probably less rather than more satisfied with this, um, how this class is is divided, or or the sorts of factions that Standing believes are present there. There's a bigger question in some ways about how this, um, the precariat are linked to uh, capitalism more widely. And in particular, how Standing, I think, sees them as as being generated by this, by a new phase of capitalism, potentially rentier capitalism. So how did you guys take this? What did you see as his kind of link between these deeper changes in capitalism and these new, this new class formation?
1: Um, I mean, I'm I'm trying to recall back because I read his book, which came out. So he wrote a book about called the Precariat. I think in 2016 or something it came out, and then in 2018 his book called The Corruption of Capitalism, which is more specifically about the capital side of the equation rather than the labor side, um, which is about rentierism. Um, And, you know, I think the title, the corruption of capitalism is something that we can maybe come on to discuss as it relates to how um, standing sees things, Um, you know, (laughs) no claxon needed here to say that I find it unconvincing, Um, you know, uh, it, well, well, we'll get into that specifically, I guess, in a bit when we come to talk about kind of standings overall sort of, um, understanding of things but he does point to the way that capital, capitalism has become increasingly rentierist and I think that's you know I, I think that's um, undeniable um how does that relate specifically to this to the development of a of a precariat um I mean partly it's that they, these rent seeking activities don't require a lot of labor or you know by their by definition I guess they they don't you know um, and that's part that's of a piece with deindustrialization in the West and so the capitalism's turn away from productive activities towards speculative ones means that um you don't need a kind of the kind of working class in the form that you used to instead you just need kind of uh a lot of people working in services to sustain um the upper middle class and the upper class um in their consumption and that is done on a basis of much more precarious and casualized um casualized labor. So you know as far as that goes I'm I'm fine with it. Um it also incidentally also explains probably the sort of bullshit jobs side of things where we're not talking especially about the precariat um but a level above that which is a, an element of the salariat, which um just does dumb email jobs which um probably aren't hugely productive or even very necessary but it but often take place in firms uh, and areas of the economy and indeed the public sector too, where there isn't a whole lot of direct production going on. So you can it can afford this um, kind of uh, metastasized bureaucratic class, you know, even in, in private corporations and whatever branding and marketing and, and finance and whatever. Um, because, uh, you know, the, that's, that's the labor component of those, of those organizations because they're not doing a lot of, you know, manual labor, you know, uh, more productive sort of stuff.
2: Yeah, I think um, I think that's it, really, isn't it? The rentier capitalism has different requirements for labour. Um, these this kind of system, which is bolstered by subsidies, of, designed to increase private debt, as this all outstanding characterises it. Privatising public services, plundering the commons, based on not producing but but renting things out. This is this is the supposedly the the situation that produces this new um, this new class of people defined by their by their uh kind of on-call nature casualized labor agency labor tasking and platform capitalism on-call and 0 contracts all this sort of thing so there is a you yeah. know there is a there is it's a link never, there
0: never it's never quite made um coherent you know so he kind of he lays out like a an account of um a kind of sketched out account of the global economy and how it's changed since the second world war um and then he lays out his kind of and he kind of draws some lines, you know, kind of linking the two, but he doesn't actually, um, he doesn't actually kind of offer a, a internally coherent account of how one, you know, kind of one particular complex of uh global, one particular kind of global economic complex generates a particular class structure in opposition to the other. Um, so you know, I think that's a kind of it's uh something of a gap in the in the case he makes.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess a, like you a, say, a f- we
0: could you know, you can draw implications.
2: Yeah. And a full, a full account is, is probably beyond the, the, the short paper or maybe even a book, you know, maybe you need three yeah, volumes. But you
0: say, well, you say that capital, right. But this is what I find odd about papers like it. Right. Which is that, you know, so he could just say, right. He could just say the precare, you know, kind of adopt the precariat as like a, a makeshift kind of, um, A makeshift analytical construct which is for you know he's deploying it in a very specific context and for a very specific and narrow purpose in order to make the kinds of policy recommendations that he does and i think you know that would be entirely legitimate and it would fit better in fact the conclusions that he draws and the analysis that he has but he doesn't do that instead he kind of makes the case that what he sketches out here nothing you know is nothing less than overturns the classical kind of schema of industrial modernity, displacing the, you know, he targets in particular the kind of Marxist um, proletariat and bourgeoisie. And so, and it is, you know, I don't understand why he needs to frame it in such kind of ambitious and provocative terms for what is a short policy paper, when it would be, you know, in many ways, I think more cohesive and more persuasive if it was framed in more modest terms.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I get, this is a a general problem that I had with it in that, there's a combination or rather, like a linkage between his revolutionary language, and ultimately moral framing uh, and then this sort of weak sauce politics that he pushes. Maybe not that weak sauce. But, you know, you basically got him talking about this. Uh, the precariat being a transformative, dangerous class, which um, has an organic relationship to uh, rentierism. Um, all of this is a corruption of capitalism, which is a is of course a very kind of moralized um, understanding of what is going on, as if you know there, we could go back to the good capitalism before it was corrupted. Um, <laughs> this incidentally is in contradiction with his um, stance, which is basically who wants jobs anyway? You know why why should we why should we push for higher wages and jobs? That's not something that we would want anyway. Hmm. Let's just let go, let's say farewell to the working class. Let's get rid re- forget about Fordism, et cetera. So there's a bit of contradiction there. And then his policy prescription is basically, let's take care of basic needs and, uh, you know, tax uh, income and wealth to create a commons fund, you know. and and so it's like,, uh, you know it's a big a bit of a descent from the revolutionary language that he introduces his concepts with so i think it all um sits awkwardly and and actually really disfavorably compares to what we're about to discuss which is braga's piece which i think is a lot more solid
2: yeah before before moving on to that i just wanted to Ask the two of you whether you found this because one of the other things to compare this to is Michael Lint's book on or his idea of about the managerial overclass. So both of these two are proposing a new, I guess, a new class or a new fraction of society, a new a new stratum that is is politically important. Which did you find more more plausible? Like in terms of the model of of going from here's this material or economic change to here's these these social actors because they're both, you know, neither of them is a kind of unpacking the economic logic of a new, new system. It's more, I guess, um, associative. Yeah. Which, which one, which one did you buy? And well, which he, one would you he, not I think, buy? No, but
0: he does not, he doesn't, they're not, um, they're not mutually exclusive. Right. Cause he talks, um, he talks about a salariat, right. Which is the kind of the, um, the people who surround the super, the kind of super elite oligarchs and that provide and that provide them with various kinds of um uh, services in order to defend their interests and they generally associate with the oligarchy. And I think that salariat would probably correspond most closely with um Michael Lynn's um you have the kind of managerial overclass so i don't think the two are um, i don't think the two yeah. are kind of mutually exclusive
1: i know exactly i think i think they actually combine reasonably well i think it's telling that in a lot of these analyses and not uh limited to the to the two you've just mentioned to Linz and to standings uh that they have a lot more precision when they're talking about the salariat or the professionals or the managerial class. And these aren't all the same things. Um, but I think they're a lot more evocative, because, partly because they're written by people who are in that class and are from that class. Um, but but also, I think there's just a little bit more definition about the nature of that class and its politics and its background and blah, blah, blah. Um, in part, because it's a class that speaks a lot more, right? So it's a class that's on Twitter on social media and whatever working desk jobs and with the time to 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 you know kind of speak, um, and the kind of you know sharp el- elbowed middle class element of it, um, but they're always a lot less um, clear. I think on what the working class is today, or what the you know the kind of lower orders are, the plebeian orders or whatever, and exactly the kind of um, re. You know, for what the level of class formation is there, and what kind of shape it takes, and that that bit is always a a bit more obscure. In part, maybe because its political, um, you you know, its political agency is a lot less clear. Yeah, I be, cool. be, you know, because the working class is, isn't, largely speaking, isn't moving. I mean, that's kind of the nature of that. Is why the, that is why we're discussing this question in the first place, right? Um, that you have the kind of breakdown of the old class and of its political organs, and therefore, when it comes to uh, introducing that and also introducing that bit of society which might be slight, which might be being proletarianized, there's a lot less, I think, clarity and sharpness in in the images presented.
0: I mean, the other element is right that you know the precariat, the those he calls the progressives, in his kind of threefold schema of the precariat. So basically, you know, grad students who haven't um, succeeded in carving out the life for themselves that they wanted. Um, those progressives are also, you know, more than likely the um, offspring of wealthy asset owning boomers. Right. Um. Compared to the others who are more like less, who are far less likely to have assets that they're due to inherit. Yeah. And that's the other kind of the generational squeeze on that element of the precariat. Right. Because they're squeezed by, you know, kind of um all the economic trends that we've talked about and the fact that they're unable to establish themselves as their parents or grandparents succeeded in doing. But at the same time, their parents aren't dying. Um, or they're living longer, and um, you know, are also going to, and in so doing, are presumably going to, you know, erode some of the wealth that they might otherwise expect to inherit. But nonetheless, I mean, when oh. the boomers, when the I- boomers transfer that wealth, it's going to be, I mean, according to one estimate I saw, it's going to be the greatest transfer of wealth in human history, right? And that is going to completely discombobulate this schema. Because right, suddenly you're going to have the progressives who've had these kind of crappy low-end uh, jobs with a tremendous amount of um, inherited wealth in contrast to the other um, fractions of the precariat who are going to inherit presumably a lot less, at least on average. you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think we should take it as a given that the, you know the progressives are the ones with... Uh, acid owning boomer parents necessarily, I, 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 in part because it presumes too much to adopt his categorization. But yeah, I think, but I think, you know, you would, well, what he what, means
0: is university, you know, he means middle class university, stu- university educated students. Right, probably. Students. Yeah.
1: But I I don't like his category anyway. But Yeah. I, anyway, I guess, I guess the point is that if this is a mass class and it's, and it's very large, you know, it, it accounts for, I don't know, it may be worth shoot you know having a shot at what how large we think this is in this this class is in you know Britain or France or the US or Germany, right? Maybe you know f- the precariat is what fifty percent? I
2: don't know. Less. Um less I would I was thinking thirty. But I mean, you could probably find this out I mean, with some, yeah, some social again, scientific methods.
0: You could, but even then I think you know so much of it would hinge on the precision of definitions. I mean 30 sounds about right. It's you know, I mean I suppose it's a number plucked out of thin air ultimately, but it sounds about right. Um, but again, I mean, it's you know it's uh, it's to do with a change in the structure of the labor market that cuts across different classes. Right. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't reorganize class relationships to the extent that he wants, which is why I would be more convinced, like I said, you know, if he wasn't so kind of sweeping and grandiloquent in the claims he wants to make for his schema. If he just said in more modest terms, you know, that this is kind of represents uh, the effects of a reorganization of global capitalism rather than a whole new model, it mm. would be more convincing. Well.
2: Just on that point about a whole new model, it's worth—I mean, because we alluded to this a little bit—that the precariat isn't the only new class in standings model. There's also the salariat, who we, who you both mentioned, and this is a shrinking number of people with labour-based security and robust benefits from healthcare to stock ownership. There's also professions who are freelance professionals, such as software engineers, lawyers, medical specialists, stock traders, um, and they operate uh, independently. Um, and they basically have high incomes, and sell themselves quite frenetically, burn out, and have uh, what he calls moral corrosion through excessive opportunism. Uh, and then you have the proletariat as well; they're, they're still you can, knocking around. Can you tell
0: us, can you tell us a bit more, Alex, about this um, this class that demoralizes itself through its opportunism and through mm. selling itself out constantly?
1: Uh, it, it's exhausting, but but uh, you know also so satisfying. Everyone wants to be a. A, a a salary slut, or even not a salary slut, because it's it's um you know it's precisely not a salary, right? So what uh, what how do you deal with the risk of moral corrosion? If, if yeah, how do i tell the listeners, that? yeah. Oh, I, I do question. I do good works on the other side, like podcasting. You know, that's... <laughs> wow. So this is supposed to be one of the good works. <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> on, oh, on, in in seriousness, I think it's interesting that, that you know the pro. What do they call, What is it called? The profit <laughs> I can't remember the professions. The um to a certain extent, you know, I, that is obviously a very much a reality. But it's this is why the sort of PMC um, category is is wrong or out, very much outdated because the PMC thing referred to people working in large corporations, um, you know, and it was an analysis made in the nineteen seventy early 1970s. And so that was before the kind of development of a, you know, substantial, albeit narrow kind of stratum of of uh, of proficients who precisely are defined by the fact that they are very often freelance, but it's a high end of the freelance. You know, this is, it's like the kind of mirror, it's like the rich mirror image of the, of the precariat, right, who don't have, um, you know, miss. Occupational or um, you know uh, kind of job security, but who earn very well, so can you know they like they have all the autonomy that the precariat is promised, but without the downsides, right? Yeah. Um, Whereas the precariat has just that you know it's it's yeah it's your Uber driver, delivery driver or whatever.
2: Being a profession is what is how um, precarity or being part of the precariat is is sold uh, without the moral corrosion. That's that's rebranded as. I don't know, moral flexibility or something like that. Mm. Um, but yeah, I guess necessarily. Oh, in, I, I just want to make the, a point like,
1: about moral flexibility, actually, because it, it is actually a, a, a pretty central element, I think. Um, I, I mean that, and this, I think, w- is where Standing gets us right, where he alludes to the fact that, you know, the precariat that comes from the Latin word for prayer, and it's um, a figure which... Uh, Demand rather figure which depends on um, asking favors, right? And this is something that um, when I wrote that essay on Brazilianization, I kind of looked at as well because it was a it was a figure in. Brazil, where you didn't have the development until kind of late, much later on, of a you know kind of formal um, proletariat, and so the the free man in a society where there you either had slaves on one hand or landowners on the other, that the free man was someone who had to go around asking favors, and that that has just be, that became generalized in Brazil, and and uh, later on generalized to the world as of the 1970s of this figure of the hustler, you know, kind of um, who has maybe autonomy relative to the, re- relative to the wage slave, but is someone who ultimately um, has to just um, get by on his, get by on his wits, right. And go, go and hustle and get by. And so it's, again, it's like the figure also of the, you know, uh, like, which um, uh, Loic Wacom wrote about in reference to, uh, you know, the figure of the American, like the hustler in the American ghetto, um, who's a guy who just has to kind of get by and whatever. And that's the figure that you know, people who talk about the precariat um, say is being increasingly generalized for everybody, right? Because everybody has to go and hustle. Mm-hmm. You can't just clock in and clock out at your job and maybe push for higher wages and maybe gain some higher wages through collective bargaining and improve your conditions or not. It, you know, that depends on the economic um, cycles, um, but you're constantly having to kind of go out to find a new job, find a new, um, you know, short-term uh, contract and, um, and please you know, always constantly seeking to please your prospective um, employer.
2: We're all entrepreneurs of the self. No, there is something about that increased, um, <clears throat> I guess, requirement to be uh, always. Uh, yeah, Colin. yeah.
1: No, no. I, I, I didn't actually c- conclude round because there, the, there's the point about moral flexibility, right? That you're constantly that the hustler has to be morally flexible um, to to kind of get by.
2: Well, uh we'll, we'll take your take your word for it. Um, In terms of the politics um, of the the precariat, what sort of uh, political projects are likely to throw their weight behind? Because if if there is, um, or one of the things that I found useful about the standing um, paper was, I guess, how he tries to draw out a policy platform. And to the extent that he does identify people who see themselves as potential precariat members, maybe this is the sort of policy proposal to, that they'd be likely to support to the extent that they do reflect their class interests. Um, what did you guys make of make of this? I mean, there's two two parts to this. One is, what are the sorts of policies that um, Standing advocates on behalf of the precariat? And secondly, he sort of says they're a dangerous class. They have transformative potential, kind of obviously bigging them up as a, a potential agent. And what did we make of that? So first, what sorts of things are they are they into? What are they going to be uh, asking for favors uh, on?
0: Well, the first point I'd say is, you know, again, I mean, there's I think it's to some extent incoherence. So, you know, he makes part of the way he motivates his claim is by saying that, um, you know, wage struggles are. Wage struggles are so passe and you're not going to succeed in them. And so you need to find other ways to do it. And so he's setting up, you know, I mean, he's basically setting up an argument for um for basic income, but also um a kind of a, a model of activism and politics that doesn't isn't based on economic expansion, but recognizing planetary limits. And so that helps, again, to kind of motivate the shift away from struggle over wages or over distribution and instead that, um, you know, the role of the precariat should be to enact this uh, new distribution system that incorporates ecological limits and also leads, I presume, to, you know, decommodification of um, of some kind of thing. The reason it's incoherent is because a lot of what he proposed or some of what he proposes strikes me like a jobs program, you know, in the sense that it would end up like his model would end mm. up with um, kind of bureaucrats and snitches. Essentially, you would need like a cadre of various um, officials in order to promote and oversee and administer these ecologically sustainable lifestyles. Right. So, I mean, on the one hand, he says, you know, um, why would you want to proliferate jobs and the precariat get the redundancy of, you know, of jobs? On the other hand, he wants a kind of, you know, inevitably it seems like it would require an expansion of um, of a certain kind of, a, of administrative cadre that I think would be very amenable to um, at least some of the uh, precariat types that he wants. The other element of it that I think is, um, you know, again, that seems to me to be problematic is that it, you know, it's predicated on an opting in for economic stagnation. So, I mean, he makes the case that there are kind of natural limits to economic growth and, you know, it's a familiar claim and one we've talked about uh, recently in our episode on deep growth communism. But, I mean, the point is, like, it's uh, it's also involves a political choice and he doesn't really, you know, he doesn't really make that explicit, the fact that he's opting for a political choice of economic stagnation on the basis of um, of natural limits so that we all become kind of custodians of um of the commonwealth
2: yeah i mean i think it's just worth saying before throwing over to you alex that the obviously the the policies that he puts forward are aimed at the progressive faction within the precariat because you could see another response to precarity or to the the position of being in the precariat which is a kind of you know we want jobs and security within those jobs and that kind of atavistic return to social democracy i think this may well be how he might categorize it and a kind of you know reduction in immigration all these sorts of things that um i think the progressive would would um probably turn their nose up at but it seems to me that there's no necessary reason why that's that couldn't be a coherent response to that condition and indeed that's arguably you could say the the atavistic um wing of the precariat is is currently doing a little bit better perhaps than the than the progressive. But Alex, you were gonna uh, jump in there.
1: No, no. I mean I, I just think you know the, there's so many kind of politics that are smuggled in here um you know in in the guise of well effectively the effect the effect of it all is to naturalize um certain aspects um of capitalist stagnation. Um, and I maybe share standings, um, stands that, you know, there's no, that, that it's no going back to Fordism. That's fine. Um, but instead it just seems to kind of, you know, it's, it's a failing, um, of much of the, I guess, of postmodern socialists or the postmodern left or whatever of basically saying, well, you know, low growth. Okay. So then we're going to have low growth forever. Might as well degrow. Um, there's fewer jobs around or jobs are being precarious. Okay. Let's get rid of. Um, jobs or or work altogether. Um, you know, the, there's pollution. Okay, let's just stop. You know, industry or whatever. All this kind of stuff, um, which kind of is, is a form of uh, recasting capitalist stagnation in in a more positive form, rather than trying to um, really push at the contradictions that exist today. And I think there's a lot of interesting stuff about the precariat. And again, I'm maybe here a not so subtle hint to George to move us on to the next text because I think there's a lot more. Uh, interesting stuff in in what um, Braga observes about this precariat than what standing does
2: Uh, I was gonna ask a final question on the transformative potential um, of the precariat under understandings um, uh, vision but we can come back to that
1: Uh, less less understanding uh, and more uh, under under, understanding understanding more uh,
2: overstanding that's More, more 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 Braga
1: um more braga
2: for the for the people um but yeah so i think you know the very different sorts of 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 articles one being quite a you know struck here are the different parts and here are the different kind of ways that things are created um and that's standing and then braga is more here is a comparison of three different national contexts where the precariat might be um present and um you know that obviously gives a different sort of uh a different sort of insight so what did you so he, he looks at um, the precariat in in three places in brazil south africa and portugal um and his definition and so this is braga's definition uh is as follows by precarious those groups of work of the working class immersed in precarious living and working conditions more susceptible to economic crises and consequently more exposed to the cycles of increased poverty and inequality between classes so his, I won't go into this in too much detail because I want to throw it back to you guys, but essentially, well, at least the way that I read it, the starting point is different in Portugal, South Africa, and Brazil as follows. In Portugal, the starting point is a defense of a fragile welfare state in South Africa. He's interested in looking at this moral economy around basic forms of subsistence, such as water and power. And in Brazil, the focus is more on a young urban precariat, mobilized in forms taken from the labor movement, um, and protesting through a language of social. And labour rights. So, in the you know, just summarise social groups of poor workers and middle class sectors of society, especially the younger generation in each case, but different ways of of becoming precarious, different different responses to that. Um, so, Alex, you you have been uh, not so subtly trumpeting this as a more useful approach than standing. Um, what did you get from the way he sets up this comparison, um, and what do you think this? sort of these three different contexts, one of which obviously you are are man on the ground for. Um what did you sort of take from, from this analysis?
1: Well I mean I guess what I like about it is that it's firstly a little bit looser in terms of in terms of the claims it's making. It recognizes that um the process of the kind of deformation or the, the kind of coming apart of the unmaking of uh, of the kind of old Fordist working class um is is the is the crucial thing right so it it's like an in negative terms right it's it's the kind of unmaking of that working class rather than saying that there's this new actor that has burst onto the scene that is um coherent and self-conscious right um i'm not sure if standing does that but you know standing kind of tries to make these big claims um for the precariat wedded to his proposals for a universal basic income and so on um whereas but Aga is is a little bit more circumspect in that regard. Um, and two, I think it's useful because the places that he analyzes in terms of like Brazil and South Africa and, and Portugal, you know, countries on periphery or the semi-periphery, which um, you know, in some cases never really had that the the kind of formalization of labor that you had in you know um North America and Western Europe. And to a certain extent it's it's a perhaps more of the more representative of um class relations around the world um than you know for, for the vast majority of people than it is than 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 you'd get from just looking at you know Western Europe. Um so I think anyway those are those are two two kind of things that I appreciated. Um and I think he got he he gets um much more accurately what the nature of protest and kind of revolt from below is today, um, and the kind of form that it takes, and and I think the moral economy lens is actually kind of useful in terms of um, uh, in terms of grasping the kind of limited politics that are there today, right, and and the kind of inchoate forms that they that they take.
2: So I guess one one question that this raises is how uh, this analysis applies outside of Brazil, Portugal, South Africa, um, and whether it's you know not everything has to be directly relevant to to Britain, but the extent to which which it is. And I think the, the starting point, as you put, it, Alex, that it's the it's the unmaking of an of an older class rather than straightforwardly um, a new form of capitalism producing new new classes. <clears throat> I think that is a, a useful one. Um, but I think one of the the things which I think Braga gets right, or it seems to me to be to have a lot of a lot of interest in, um, is this idea that the the precariat plays a theoretical role um, in an, in analysis, and it specifically fills a void left left by the collapse of new social movements in the early two thousands. And we actually kind of started a little bit by discussing this, right? We were talking about Ford march of labor halted new social movements as, an, as a kind of potential new actor that didn't really come about is this kind of right is this essentially just the left's kind of great new agency hope in the young unemployed or underemployed workers in the global south is this basically all there is to the precariat um that it's this kind of the new the great yeah. new hope
0: it's a great question and um I'd like. I mean, I'd be tempted to say. I mean, I think it clearly is in the sense that there is a tremendous amount of, um, you know, there's a tremendous amount of, I suppose, um, attention and emphasis and hope which is placed on it. Um, but that's a separate question from how significant uh, this the this group or the groups that you know fall under this label are. Um, and I think potentially a lot more, they are more significant. So I think the two things, you know, there's uh, there are two aspects to the question. There clearly is like, you know, it clearly is the great new hope. Um, but at the same time, I think given the fact that we're talking about how this can, you know, the connection between these groups and the basic operation of modern capitalism is very different from, say, um, you know, NGOs speaking on behalf of um, you know, landless indigenous communities in the Amazon, um, or NGOs speaking on behalf of um, you know, displaced uh, displaced and uh, marginal um tribes people in Darfur. You know, so I mean I think the simply by virtue of the the sociology of what we're talking about makes its politics very different. So it's not to say that the left is right to um, give, you know, endow the precariat with as much um, potential as they do, but that nonetheless, it is a different kind of proposition from the kinds of um, previous agency hopes that the left has kind of cycled through in the last few decades.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think. Well, firstly, I don't think that there's this is. I mean, not talking about the left as as, as a whole, but just about Braga's, I don't know how much you know whether it comes across as particularly hopeful like this is the great new agent in fact it's pretty like modest in in what it's um claiming and what it's observing you know what he it says he's observing um you know he it says it's still something that's relatively form- formless and it's class struggle without classes um and you know that that the politics that it um, advances is pretty limited. The, as to just the kind of question about whether this is relevant to just, pres- you know, the the countries observed, I think the point is, I mean, and obviously this would be a surprise to no one, but you know as an advocate of the brazilianization thesis um you know the the point is that the unmaking of the working class is something that um has maybe hit the third world first or rather the making of the working class is a process that was stalled in the third world and is something that has been happening in 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 the first world for a very for a very long time so um the you know the precariat would be the kind of um increasingly be the modal form of um those below, right, or the bottom 70% of society or whatever, however you want to um, class it, bottom 80%. Um, and so, you know, obviously, with pretty different social conditions and economic structures, so, you know, the kind of um, person living in a shantytown in, in South Africa, it will have, you know, very different kind of uh, outlook on things and, a, and economic structure to, to a kind of um, delivery driver in Nottingham, right. Um, but there is, a common thread, I think, um, in in saying that this is that they are the the figures of this is what labor looks like now in the, in terms of its you know casualization, um, you know switching occupations, uh, and and just general sense of of um, uncertainty about about life, which is different from what was what the modal worker was in nineteen fifty.
2: Yeah, no, I think so. You mentioned this idea of class struggle without classes. I mean, I, I don't think this was necessarily the the clearest. I mean, it's in the title, but I don't think it was the clearest bit of the article. But I think it definitely uh, rang. It, it resonated with me because I thought, well, yeah, there is like if you follow this idea of the defeat of of the working class through what what is this? You know, this demoralization and demobilization. Um, that we've talked about, you know, quite a lot on this on this podcast. What does this actually mean for the nature of of class struggle today? And I think there was it's the first time that I'd <clears throat> heard this phrase, although it's a, it's taken from a an E.P. Thompson um, article, which I actually did did end up reading after after reading this this Braga article because I thought it was you know such a, such a good idea. And the basic idea here is that the this original context of eighteenth century food riots in England with a with a A gentry and a pleb class struggle um that we're sort of in this in this condition today but i mean it's an an entirely new one because instead of before a a process of kind of before we had the classes which came to define industrial capitalism it's now one of them has been sunk and maybe it sunk the other one with it um so you now have this kind of social conflict based on the action of insurgent social groups that directly challenge governments without the mediation of state-recognized political representatives. So essentially, I would read this as him as him sort of saying, well, and if you extend it a little bit, one of the key political questions is one of representation and that this question is raised by the structure um, of classes and the nature of class struggle that we have today. So class struggle without class um, kind of potentially a paradoxical or oxymoronic phrase did you guys find this this useful insightful or or did i just over uh into it
1: no i think it was completely i think it's completely right you know he and the the call that um, braga makes is to recover the universality of the notion of class struggle um so you know gentry versus pleb you know or even just those above and those below um Prior to the appearance of sociologically differentiated classes, that is bourgeoisie and workers. And I think this is, you know, we talked, I think, on the last episode that came out uh, at the end of, you know, 2022 with Anton Jaeger about. You know the kind of relevance, maybe of of you know Europe in the eighteen forties to our times, much more than the nineteen thirties. Um, and I think you know I think these are two things which um, which which fit together, right? That it's it's um, we're in a position prior to um, if that's not if that doesn't presume too much prior to the kind of formation of classes. So you have elements of class struggle, but it's. Um, disorganized, right, in, in terms of it not being formalized into um, collective organizations, all right? Um, it's much more atomized, um, and it's something which is not mediated either, in not just in terms of the organizations, but in terms of what it attacks. So it's always um, kind of directed at the state, directed at the nation state, Um uh, calling for the preservation of some social rights um which is rather different to the kind of modes and repertoires of politics that have existed throughout the 20th century uh and so i you yeah, know i, mean, I think no, that, i think that's i think that's useful and and sorry let me just to give I some mean, I'm examples not so sure, I... it's like this would capture everything from elements of like the the gilets jaunes right to the french truckers protest to June 2013 in Brazil, you know, or a large section of who the agents were there to, you know, kind of various different protests in South Africa and so on. Um, That would be all class struggle without classes.
0: I'm not so, I mean, I am, you know, the, the proposition of class, how to conceptualize craft class struggle without class. Um, You know, it's a very alluring uh, proposition, And, um, you know, I think the one is worth thinking about more. What I'm not convinced by is this idea that he tries to connect it to that um, it's a moral, you know, the the way in which that it's connected to a moral economy. So that kind of idea of gentry and plebs is at the very, you know, it's prior to the formation or in the uh, at best in the early stages of the formation of modern industrial capitalism when we are still in the throes of um industrial capitalism i think you know so um in the sense at least that industrialism is industrialization is being extended outside of its um 20th century core right so I'm not sure that it, you know, that idea that it that we can kind of transplant the categories from the start of the process to the peak of the process or the middle of the process or whichever stage we are in. It doesn't seem to me to really, you know, it doesn't seem to me to have legs. And this notion, you know, it's, it that idea of gentry and plebs also fits and. A notion of moral is what he, you know, he takes also from Thompson this idea of moral economy that doesn't correspond to anything that is to do with class politics from the twentieth century. So this notion of a moral, you know, the nineteen nineties, you know, the quote from page four hundred and seventy of the Braga piece, um, the wave of commodification. Um, began in the 1970s, I don't know, and again, the commodification thing drives me totally mental, but I'm not going to get into that because we've spoken about it before. The wave of commodification began in the 1970s, intensified with the collapse of bureaucratic socialism in the 1990s, rapidly erased decades of efforts to institutionalize what Edward P. Thompson called the moral economy of the poor. So, the you know, I mean, the idea that the welfare state... um or that the Soviet Union was about institutionalizing a moral economy of the poor, is just entirely wrong-headed. Is, you know, is, it, it is that doesn't what he says, correspond. Is that what he yeah, suggests? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just read out the quote, so yes, that is what he but, suggests. But okay, so it's so, entirely wrong-headed.
2: So if we, I guess this this raises the question then, is do you have to retain the terms of the moral economy? Um, And there's, it seems to me there's also a kind of related problem that... <clears throat> In Braga's analysis, that he sees this as a passive economic process. the the Fordist working class had to some extent has to some extent been unmade by neoliberalism, rather than one of an active process of political defeat of the working class. And I think so. If if you and you know, maybe these two things are related. So if we take out the moral economy, if we take out the the kind of the economic passive processes, and say, you know, there there was a political defeat when in this situation where um <clears throat> there aren't uh, the mediation of state rep, uh, recognized political representatives within class struggle does is it is it then more a useful a more useful concept class struggle without
1: classes yeah i mean i think it is if you you know focus on what's important here in terms of what the political actions have been right if we're talking you know th- Taking the examples that he gives here, and we can think of uh, a whole number of other struggles that have emerged in the past decade and a half around um, whether it's seeking to preserve kind of some citizenship rights, public services, um, reaction to new taxes, reaction to um, inflate, you know, protests against inflation, all sorts of things, right, all around the world, um, which take rather inchoate forms can sometimes be um, lean or be captured more by the right, sometimes be led more by the left. But, you know, it's it's all very, um, you know, very fluid, right? Um, This is the end of the end of history this is what we've always been talking about i think um i think that you know it's useful to think about in terms of the, the of the these are the the forms that revolt takes when you have class struggle without class and one of the most interesting elements i think and this is something that braga says at the beginning and right at the end that there's an organic conflict between neoliberal logic and non economic behaviors linked to citizenship rights. Now that seems a little bit opaque, but the point I th- the point is that um, there seems to be a, a a necessary connection between uh neoliberalism and the breakdown of the old Fordist arrangements, of the kind of unmaking of class and of precaritization, and the form that protests take, which target the state um, and don't aren't um struggles within the workplace against bosses against employers against capital or maybe not against capital but against uh, you know against bosses um and, you know in fact, workplace struggles and are things which are always directed kind of at the state at politics immediately right it's un- it's kind of um unmediated in that regard and i think that's um that's something that we yeah we constantly discuss i think if not maybe yeah. maybe not in these terms
0: it's a good point but again i think he kind of it's kind of misplaced Right. So, I mean, so the connection is that so many of these struggles are connected to austerity measures or privatization measures. And thus, it's inevitable, you know, that the insofar as there are protests that they target particular government or state policies. And so he explicitly kind of differentiates himself from the peak anti-globalization types, you know, the Hart and Negri thesis of um empire and um multitude right which i thought you know he you know i mean he offers a good kind of he offers a good kind of sideswipe against them but he doesn't go far enough right um particularly with regards to uh the question of how far i mean they're so these protests kind of um are initially, you know, they initially target specific policies, associate or specific government policies, rather than being kind of shop floor, shop floor revolts, or, you know, kind of um, struggles contained within a particular sector, or particular company. So that's true, right? But he doesn't, it's not real, they aren't really targeted against the nation state. Um, I mean, I think that's the you know, uh, they're not on...
1: questioning the state's authority itself. They're they're petitioning the state in many cases or resisting it's the state.
0: It's not just it's not just that they're petitioning the state because I think it's you know there is ins- I think both the protest you know the protests have shown, particularly in Portugal, but also and and on his part, uh, there's a sufficient there is insufficient clarity about what is being targeted in terms of the nature of the state that's being targeted. Right. So, I mean, in the case of, um, you know, you're talking about very particular kinds of not nation states, in fact, I mean, particularly in the case of Portugal, right? It's a member state of the European Union. And the fact the, um, you know, that this was austerity in Portugal was driven from Brussels. The fact that the Portuguese protest movement and the Portuguese left was unable to, you know, resolve um, to kind of cut that Gordian knot is part of the reason that it failed, right? So they weren't, what they were actually targeting was of the decisions made by the Portuguese government, and that was fronted by Portuguese socialists as well, right? And um, I'd say, obviously, neither Brazil nor South Africa are, um, are uh, you know, EU members, but nonetheless, there are similar kinds of effects at work in the kind of neoliberal state that you get um in the case of South Africa and Brazil, which is to say states which are um designed to or you know which are kind of structured in such a way that they're networked into global structures and are designed to be immune to popular pressure.
1: But that um, I mean so, that those are all states today, right? I mean and so Yeah well and, to
0: greater or lesser so, extent but my so, point so is I mean, the not, point so but it's, it's a state, right?
1: But you're missing the wood for the trees, I think, here because the, the point is that they target political authority whether it is uh, at the level of the nation state and maybe that's a hollow um you know that that's a kind of a, a you know a hollow authority in the case of european countries because really it's about the eu or whatever but the point is that they target political authority rather than um more mediated or more kind of intermediary um questions yeah no i mean
0: right? i i like I, I mean this is you know this is what i said at the beginning i think You know, what he says is, uh, you know, it's a very useful reminder. But I think both he and the protests that he talks about were confused about the nature of the authority that they were targeting. And he doesn't clarify it. Right. Precisely because he doesn't address these questions. He takes, you know, he assumes that they're um, that they're dealing with the they're dealing with the state that is essentially the same or that hasn't been kind of reconfigured in all sorts of important ways um, in the transition from, uh, you know, in the transition into neoliberalism and indeed the crisis of neoliberalism, right? So there's so many kind of loose ends which are left, you know, for, I mean, just think of, you know, how he talks about the crisis of Lulism, right? And how important that is to understanding kind of Brazilian politics and the end, you know, the kind of the crisis of Brazilian neoliberalism. Um, so anyway, it's only to say, I think, you know, the kind of, there is, you know, it's a kind of, uh, one step forward, two steps back kind of maneuver, analytical maneuvers throughout the piece.
2: Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I happen to think the more emphasis you put on this, um, <clears throat> without the mediation of state recognized political representatives, which is how he defines this class or without classes, maybe this is a way to, to start to think about that, but I do take, do take some of those points about the changing nature of the state and particularly member states. Um, so just to bring it all together, um, had some some synoptic or synthetic or roundup or however you want to put them, uh, questions. Um, the first one is, does the precariat exist as a class? What do we think? I mean, have we spent this whole episode talking about something which doesn't even
1: exist? Well, I mean, you know, it. it the the you know it's if it's moving um if it's the undoing of Fordism right which is a very which is a, again as I, we've said earlier is an old topic if it's the undoing of Fordism uh, it's not either a move to a pre-Fordist working class right it's not something it's not going back to um the 1910s or the 1890s or whatever right? Um, because that was a, a class, that was a much more formed class, I suppose, of, you know, the the industri- European industrial working class at that time, um, mm-hmm. in its kind of level of organization, and class consciousness was much greater than um, these masses today that we're talking about. So um, does it deserve a new term? I suppose it does, because it's a it's kind of historically unique situation. Um, does it exist in a in an like an, an antagonistic relationship with with capital in a kind of in the way that one would say the proletariat does. Um it's a, I don't know. I I, I can't no, not gonna answer that. I, I mean I, I, I
0: would well but he doesn't it doesn't even by Braga's own definition, right? Because as we've been saying, he sees it as kind of locked in this confrontation with political power or state power, with government policy rather than with um, you know, private ownership of the means of production. So I would, I mean, I would, I mean, I agree with Alex, you know, so I think I, I think the precariat does exist if it's caveated and qualified to be understood as a kind of, um, you know, as a makeshift, as a construct, um, which is an artifact of changes in the structure of labor markets over the last 30, 40 years. It doesn't exist. If you understand it as something that displaces kind of classical categories of capital and labor or proletariat and capitalists, then it doesn't exist right it simply yeah, can't yeah. you know it can't um displace those originary categories because that would require a different kind of um you know an entirely kind of different claim and set of propositions about the nature of modern capitalism which haven't been um offered in either of these pieces you know to any kind of real convincing extent so i think it does exist and it is a construct it is you know is um as uh, standings piece suggests it is kind of combined of, uh, con- you know, of different elements um, and they share some things in common, but there's also tensions in them, which are indeed, at least to my mind, you know, those are the tensions, in fact, of um, original kind of uh, class divisions, which I think like the precarious standings precariat would like explode in all sorts of, very, you know, all sorts of pressures that are put on it. It would explode into its constituent fragments. Um, and uh, you know, I, like I said, one of those, you know, kind of um, one thing that might precipitate such a fragmentation would be, say, a transfer of wealth from uh, boomers to um, preca- currently precarious, um, possibly, you know, uh, wealthy in the future. Um, yeah, current progresses. current
2: precariat future uh, post-boomer asset asset rich. I guess there's it does raise the question of whether the uh, the state can can transform or buy off <clears throat> the precariat by changing labor conditions. If we see a, a sort of a shift post from austerity to a different sort of state structuring of the labor market, maybe this is something which can can change the material conditions of of the precariat. But um,
1: I actually think- just just on that briefly, because yeah. you know I think that would um, re- sections of the middle class or No, most of the middle class has become accustomed to. Um, the level standard of living provided by um a poor working class, which is to say a precariat, right? A precariat, someone you know, the kind of app workers. Um, which um to make an analogy, you know, sorry to, to kind of you know in Brazil, but you know in Brazil the middle class is able to have a higher standard of living because um the bottom is so far down. Right, that um, you can employ people cheaply to do things that uh, a middle class person at the same level in Britain would never be able to afford, um, and that's what's happening now in in, in Western, you know, in, in Western Europe and North America, I mean, especially I think in the most precaritized elements in the U.S. and the U.K., where um, you're able to you know aff- afford a standard of living because people bring you shit. <laughs> right, which you order on your phone, which didn't used to be the case. And that is dependent on the fact of, um, you know, of kind of broken down working class. Um, if the state suddenly gave them steady jobs and whatever, that would eat into um, a standard of living that uh, sections of the, uh, the, you know, the upper middle class has become very accustomed to. So there's a cl- conflict there um, yeah. that I don't see any political existing political actors willing to to drive at that at the moment.
0: That was Brexit. I mean, that was very directly part of Brexit, right? Because it threatened to take away um, the prop of a certain kind of middle class standard of living, which was cheap immigrant labor from Eastern Europe. All the disgusting Corbynista dads who were proving over their Romanian nannies—that was what <laughs> Brexit threatened to take away from them.
2: You, you heard, you heard it here first. That's—I that, mean, I think we've heard a, a number of different analyses of of Brexit um, on this podcast, and that's. That's uh, one more. Um,
1: so, well, and with Andrew Tate being arrested, that that cuts another supply of Romanian porn. So I guess, you know, yay Brexit. I don't know where we're going with this. Anyway, sorry.
0: You're need... the one who brought Andrew Tate into it, Alex. Nobody asked you to do that.
1: Yeah,
2: so just to maybe to, to wrap things up then, because we've had <clears throat> these, you know, four episodes now on neo-feudalism or techno-feudalism which of the four account or maybe just let's limit it to the ones in in the reading club because Morozov's article was a a critique of different um, pieces more than possibly putting forward his own but what do we think it gives the kind of the best explanation or the most kind of satisfying or useful set of of concepts is it that we're living in a a, a coming neo-feudal age this is Kotkin's claim and he Says here are the changes in the class structure. Here are the the changes in cities. This is this is his his picture. Um, do we have new technology changing things? Um, do, the birth of or not the birth, but the acceleration of AI producing some inhuman power, which will produce a, accordingly a new possibility for a, a different sort of communism, or is it that we have a new class agent? So this is Standing and Braga. So what we've been discussing today Um, or this is my gloss on all of these uh, of course um that we have this sort of new group in society and this is what explains the the kind of the plausibility of 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 accounts of of near future which of the if we could only pick one of the three books to um to keep and we burn the other two then which one do we we keep even though it was too
1: often. Hours- yeah, I love, love, love some book burning on this
2: podcast. Yeah. I mean, um, you've got to get down to brass tacks and really put a finer point on it. Um, but they've got digital copies anyway. So it's a bit performative, anyhow.
1: I mean, I'm going to swerve the question by saying I've found this whole process super useful um, in doing these readings because um, I was, when I first came across a techno feudal thing, like maybe whenever it was three years ago, I don't know, two years ago, whatever. Maybe longer. Who knows? Time is time is just a bit of a drug. At the end of the day, anyway, um, the uh, I, I found it kind of compelling. It's like ooh, sexy new concept to try to understand where we're going. And actually, doing all this is like, yeah, no, it's it's pretty much bullshit, I think. Um, and um, I think you know, Morozov, as I've said, I, I've said my appreciation of that, and in, in the way that he demolishes some of the really kind of the nucleus of what the whole techno feudal thesis hinges upon. Um. So, but you know, again, a lot of these various themes are real and are happening. Phenomena are happening, and exploring them, um, has been useful, and I found this one on on class the same. One, one, just one final thing. Uh, Robert Brenner has been talking about political capitalism, and this is, I think, a way of talking about the neo feudal thesis without necessarily endorsing it in those terms. And it's basically to say that you know this capitalism relies increasingly on um, plunder. Right on on the st- on the state um, extracting wealth and, and tran- channeling it upwards, um, and you know uh, we're going to be doing episodes on this actually um, very soon, so keep an eye out for that. But I do think one thing that struck me today is that um, by hook or by crook, or you know, in sort of some sort of irony of of history, the way that the um, precariat addresses. Um, you know, the precariat supposedly being the new serfs, um, directly addresses the state and political power rather than, um, you know, uh, private property and, and the bosses, um, is a in some sense a recognition unknowingly of the fact that we are in political capitalism because they address the state rather than um, owners of capital. Um, that's i'm going to throw that out there more as a question because i don't think um i don't think i've actually framed it entirely right i'm not not sure that's entirely true but i think there is some sort of interesting happening there i thought
0: that was useful i thought that was a good point alex It's useful i would so i'll do i'll kind of echo what alex said i'll dodge the question because by saying that the um i mean i found kotkin a great read i've said before you know even though i didn't agree with it but i think the um I think the the tension that's generated by trying to test the neo-feudal or the techno-feudal thesis against reality, you know, is useful. Um, so, I mean, even though, like, you know, it's a schema that doesn't work, the attempt to fit it in um, or the attempt to make kind of uh, society kind of fit into the grid that it provides and seeing where it kind of spills over, it doesn't quite fit, is useful. So I think, you know, it's always the tension between an analytical schema and its application that is, um, it's that tension itself that is uh, the basis of uh, useful discussion rather than trying to like, um, you know, rather than kind of trying to, um, you know, entirely endorse some kind of uh, positive uh you know, the new kind of theoretical construct. And the other thing I'd say, which I would agree with that, you know, I'd agree with Alex. I mean, I think it's right that it's uh, kind of an unconscious, um, that insofar as all of these kind of various um, political and social struggles that we've seen in the end of the end of history insofar so far as they um, are addressed to state power and government choices rather than calling into question private ownership of the means of production or challenging capital. Um, you know, they speak maybe to the central problem, which is really, or, you know, it kind of, or rather, it makes the question of their political consciousness all all that much sharper, right? Because it means that the lack of political consciousness of so many of these struggles is um, you know, what makes them so kind is partly what makes them so easily defeated or contained not understanding the very politics they're stuck in
2: yeah i think um i'm also going to dodge the question it wasn't a very good question um so i can i can criticize it because i i asked it but i do think all all the readings touch on something which is true this reality of stagnation and the possibility of regression the, the lack of kind of historical motor force given by by class struggle between the working class and and the capitalist class you know that there, there is something there and i think this is why in all all of the readings of this part of the reading club there were certain parts that i thought yeah that's really that's really really true the overall model of techno feudalism or neo feudalism or the precariat i didn't you know i didn't agree with with that but i think it it just shows that this that there is something that's really Centrally important here, and this is obviously part of the end of the end of history. To a certain extent, this idea that you have you don't have these organised classes in the same way that you used to, so you don't have a straightforward sort of rebirth of an old sort of politics, and instead you have, arguably, and this would be my gloss on it, you have this possibility of the intermediary classes, maybe even the, the hated PMC having a kind of greater role in in society and having a kind of a, a place as the uh, the proletariat and the, the capitalist class in relative historical terms somewhat fall away but i think all of the different um expressions of the neo-feudal thesis do do kind of return to this idea that yeah there is a possibility that we're not moving forward historically in the way that we have previously and this is a very you know very abstract high level thing to to claim or to to assert and so there are going to be some <clears throat> some different ways to under, understand this and i think all of the readings kind of added to my my understanding of that to a greater or lesser extent. Um, but yeah, that's that's 2022 Reading Club. The final page has been turned and it's and it reads the end. Um what a what a what a nice story.
1: <laughs> all right. Um, yeah. Well, let us know what you thought. Let us know what you thought about this, about the reading club as a whole. Thank you all uh, to who answered the um, the the BungaCast survey uh, for 2022. I know a lot of you did, um, especially subscribers to the reading club. We've taken all that you've said into consideration, and we're and we've revamped the reading club for 2023. Um, and you will hear more about it very very soon. Thank you for listening. Hope you had um, some wonderful holidays and uh, your January isn't too depressing. Um, And we'll try to make it all that more depressing for you. (laughs) Catch you later. (laughs) Bye-bye.